two weeks ago. Jim mentioned this in the opening. He preached a message from the book of James. I don't know if anyone remembers the title. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And he also mentioned in that sermon that statistics show that one hour after he finished, we remembered 20% of what he said. So how much do we remember two weeks later? Jim asked that question earlier. Maybe the larger question we need to ask ourselves is do I want to remember? And if so, how can we make that happen? This morning I want us to think about the subject of worship. What it is, where it came from, and how we do it. Let me just tell you, it's been a very difficult week. Actually, a couple weeks as I've been working on this. And I ask myself the question, how is it possible that I can convey something that I can't even seem to grasp myself? Let's pray. Father, this morning we have gathered in this place and we need You to speak to us. We need You desperately this morning. We need to hear from You. And so Lord, we just simply ask You with open hearts, open minds, a desire to hear and to understand that Your Holy Spirit would fill us with Your Word. somehow, some way. And that we would remember what You're telling us. In the precious name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. This morning I want us to begin in the book of Genesis, chapter 4. We know the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Cain and Abel well. But in chapter 4, the second part of verse 2, it says this, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering, But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. It's interesting, there in verse 3, there's a short little phrase that says, in the course of time, or some translations have it, in the process of time. I understand that in a direct translation, it is at the end of days. Henry Morris writes that little phrase suggests a systematic, regular, and repetitive known time sequence that Adam and the growing population would have been familiar with in the course of time. It was something that they understood. It wasn't just something out of the blue. 
It would seem that what happens next, in our, as we'll read it here, is a familiar practice, what they did. It wasn't something that they just decided on their own, oh, let's do this. It was something they knew about, they understood it, and they did it. It was expected. So in verse 3, we read that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel brought of the firstborn of his livestock. And the Lord's response to those offerings was He had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, He had no regard. So what does it mean that God regarded or had no regard? It's interesting. It simply means that God noticed Abel's offering and He ignored Cain's. We'll return to Cain later. If you jump down to verses 25 and 26, we read this, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Or as the Israel Bible said, it's a Jewish Bible, it's very difficult to read because you read it backwards. You start at the back and you read forward. It's really, that's how Hebrew is. It's an English translation, obviously. But it says that at that time, people began to invoke Hashem, which means the name by name. So it was at this time in history that it seems that there was this separation that began to take place between the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain. A bit of context of who Cain and what we know about him and what comes later throughout Scripture. It's believed by many Jewish scholars that with Cain began the organized worship of the stars and the heavenly bodies. In other words, idol worship began with Cain. And as we read his response as God asks him questions about his regard, regarding his sacrifice, Cain was, got kind of bent out of shape. And it seems that he went off to do his own thing. So this short little phrase, at that time they began to call on the name of the Lord, suggests that at least Seth's line began to make a deliberate corporate effort in the worship of Jehovah God, the Creator God. Henry Morris continues, From this point on, over the next 700 years, the population of the earth begins to degenerate. By the time Adam and Seth are dead and Noah is in his prime, the world was totally corrupt. Now if you're curious, it's believed that the world's population at the time of the flood was about 3.5 billion people. As I thought about that, as we read Scripture and we know what's coming and we think of, you know, there's almost 8 billion people on earth. Now how could God ever kill many people? 
he wiped out 3.5 billion minus 8. He did it once. He says he'll do it again. And we know that God destroyed the earth with the flood and everything that breathed died. But God spared Noah and his family. And it would seem that that destruction of the sinful human race would have eradicated sin from the earth. But as we know, it didn't. There's something that lived on, especially in the heart of Noah's youngest son, Ham. The vast devastation of the earth because of sin did not wash away the sin that was in Ham's heart. We read in Genesis chapter 8 that after departing, after departing from the ark, Noah built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings as an act of worship. Again, worship. So, And then roughly 200 years after that, people began to have this desire to build a city and a tower which is called the Tower of Babel. But why did they do that? What was the purpose of the city? And what was the purpose of the tower? And why was God so angry with what they were doing that He dispersed the peoples by confusing their language? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, we read that God through Moses warns the people to be very careful that they do not make an image in the form of anything, human or animal, to worship. And he said, And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you will be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Warnings are not issued if there is no potential danger. Much later, during the reign of King Hoshea of Israel, the Lord severely punished the nation for returning to the worship practices of the early nations that had been their enemies for centuries. The very nations that were the descendants of Ham, Cush, and Nimrod. It's interesting that many archaeological artifacts have been found that attribute the worship of Baal to Nimrod, the grandson of Ham, the great-grandson of Noah. And we know that, as we read through Scripture, that the worship of Baal was a continual, ongoing stumbling block to Israel. I say all that to say, to simply say, that worship has a long history in the world. And I find it also interesting, I looked this up, that Hinduism has 330 million gods. I guess they just don't want to leave anybody out. <laughs> but think of that. All of the idols and all the things that people worship in the world. And then, as we read the Old Testament, almost it seems like it's out of the blue. The God of creation speaks to one man, Abram, in the city of Ur of the Chaldees. 
which is in modern-day southern Iraq. One man. He didn't go into the court of some king and speak to this whole group of people. He didn't go to multiply conference or something like that. He went to one man, and he said, Abram, follow me. Now the question is, was Abram one of those who worshipped God? Probably not. And the reason not is that Ur, it was a city of 200,000 people, and it was under the direct influence of the Babylonian pantheistic religions of Nimrod. Interesting. But God saw something in Abram, later Abraham, a man who was searching for truth, a man who was teachable, a man that God saw that he would listen and he would obey. And it wasn't until many years later that God revealed to Moses how he was to be worshipped. In Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. We remember Mount Sinai as we read that. God said there's a perimeter around this mountain. Do not touch this mountain. Do not come near. If you or an animal touch this mountain, you will die. So what's the message? You are to worship at a distance. It's interesting, the very design of the tabernacle and the temple later made it clear that God was to be worshipped at a distance. God was in the cloud. God was in the inner sanctuary. And all were forbidden to go inside. Sin had brought that separation. Sin always brings separation, keeping man from God. The message was and is clear. God is holy and can in no way have fellowship with our sinful race unless that sin is dealt with. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians 4. Because Christ came as the ultimate and final sacrifice for the sin of humanity, we are now invited, we are now encouraged to come close. Hebrews 10 tells us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, in that day, in Moses' day, Abram's day, I guess it wasn't there yet, in Jesus' day, it was forbidden to enter the presence of God 
And now it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is an absolute incredible invitation. We are to come boldly with confidence. But what does that look like? Psalm 122, verse 1 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Is that how you felt this morning when mom and dad said, come on, let's go to church. Oh yeah, I can't wait to get there. Don't coffee. Or, mom and dad, as Amos said, said the people were saying when will the sabbath be over so we can get back to business our text this morning is in ecclesiastes chapter 5 and i find it i'll say providential that aaron brought it up in sunday school and jim brought it up and here we're talking about it again I suppose many of us kind of, we don't know what to do with Ecclesiastes. Because it seems that everything that the preacher talks about, he calls himself the preacher, which is one who speaks to an assembly. Everything's meaningless. It's like, wait a minute, that's, that's not right. I mean, what do we do with this book? Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is a book that investigates life and tells what kind of life is worth living. It is the quest of a soul who sees only vanity all about him until his eyes are opened to the hope offered by God. Solomon is the writer. Whether you like him or not, he had a lot of issues we know. God used him. But in our modern translations, it says everything is meaningless or everything is vanity. From what I've read, that's a bad translation because it taints everything. Because our definition of meaningless means it has no meaning. There's no purpose. The word habel means a breath. It's not, a breath is not meaningless. Everybody take a deep breath. Okay, now don't take another one all day. We can't. We, have, we, we breathe once, and then we breathe again, and we breathe again, and tomorrow we'll do the same thing, and over and over, and over and over. So life is like that. It's, it's a continual, it's not meaningless, just a breath. It's here, and it's Another one comes, and that one goes. A baby's born, a person dies. Another one's born, another one dies. The sun rises, the sun sets. It rains and then it doesn't rain. I just hope it rains. But that's the idea. Everything is a breath. It's not meaningless. So the, I say that the preacher is the one who is writing. And in chapter 5, 
We've read it a couple times. And this is a warning to us, I think, as we think about coming into the presence of God with boldness and confidence. He says this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Ouch! The preacher is standing to the side and he's watching the throngs go up those southern steps. Those steps still exist. Those steps where Jesus stood on as he taught. They're still in existence. As he watched those throngs of people go up into the temple to worship, something they did and something they do on a regular basis. But it seems that he was not totally encouraged by what he was observing. But wait a minute. That was, that was that's several thousand years ago. We don't live then. We live now. How does a book like Ecclesiastes apply to us or Cain or Abel or Moses or Abram or any of those? If it is true, as Scripture says, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, if that is true, then God today is still the same God as He was then. He is just as holy. He is just as righteous. His righteous decrees are still righteous decrees. His grace covers over our multitude of sins for sure, but God still requires much of us as He did of them. In fact, I think He requires more of us today than He did them because we have been given so much more. We have been given this great salvation through the Lord Jesus. So we are more responsible than they were, not less. And as the preacher watches, what does he see? Well, he notices that they seem to be into the music. There was lots of music in the temple. There were hundreds and hundreds of singers. There were trumpets. There was all kinds of musical instruments. And the morning that he was there, the coffee was extra good. Good job, John. And there was a lot greater variety of donuts. That's great. Thanks, Aaron. That's all good. And because we have a bulletin, we can see who's leading worship and whether they like the music or not, right? But the question for us, for me, is why do we come here every Sunday morning from 9.30 to noon? Hopefully you'll be out of here by noon. Why? Do we come to enjoy each other's company? We should. Do we come to be encouraged in our spirits and lifted by the music that we hear and sing? We should. Do we come to offer our praise to God for His great mercy and salvation? We absolutely should. But do we come 
to hear from God. The preacher says, come near to listen to Him. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen. Do I ask myself on Saturday afternoon, as I begin early in the afternoon to close down my day because the Sabbath is beginning, And I suspect most of you don't either. But do I begin to prepare my mind and my heart for this morning? Because when I walk through that door, my intent in being here is hear from Him. Somehow, some way. Or is it just something that we do? It's on our calendar. We just do it. It's habit. We've always done it. We know it's a good thing. The fact is, we need to prepare. It's not possible to have our minds full of the week behind or the week ahead. And the minute we walk in and we sit down and we sing, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, and presto, here we are. I can hear from God. It ain't going to happen. It ain't. It isn't. If we come here to listen, we have to prepare. There is very little that we do in life that does not take preparation. Bible school is coming the end of the month. It has been being prepared for months. Why is that? Because it takes preparation in order to gain the desired outcome. It can't happen any other way. I cannot come here in the morning and hear from God if my heart isn't prepared, ready to hear from Him. God our Father is not interested in the time that we give up. I gave you three hours on Sunday. What more do you want? He's not interested in our eloquence of words or the harmony in our songs. He wants our hearts our undivided hearts. Worship is the external action of an internal attitude. And I'll be honest, some, I don't even know what that means sometimes. Have you ever heard the word syncretism? It's what the Jewish people suffered from, and I think it's what we also have to guard for, guard, watch out for. George Barner wrote, from many, from many quarters we are hearing that we have entered a time in our history today called, quote, the post-pandemic world, end quote. And that means that life has changed forever as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And not for the better. So how has our life changed? As I thought about that, I don't really, in myself, I don't see that much change. It's interesting what surveys have found since 2020 that in America, at least, there's this greater embracing of syncretism, which is the fusions 
of different religions. George Barner writes, the ideological and philosophical confusion that characterizes America, you think America's confused? Is perhaps the biggest reflection of the nation's rejection of biblical principles and its decision, didn't happen by accident, to replace God's truth with personal truth. The danger that constantly haunted ancient Israel, and I believe for us today, is this idea that we can serve multiple gods. Now, we don't build statues. We don't. We don't go out and look at the sun. Oh, thank you, sun. For... No, we, know. we thank the Lord for the sun. We thank the Lord for the rain, the cool nights, the warm day. We thank Him for everything. We don't necessarily do it intentionally or even wantonly, but that is the warning the preacher is giving us here in Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps. Watch where you're walking because you can get off the path pretty easily. As one preacher described it, God doesn't listen to what's going into the microphone and not the speaker's. God doesn't listen to our podcasts. He listens with a stethoscope. When I go to Dr. David, one of the things he does is he gets this thing, he sticks it in his ears, and he puts it on your back or your chest, and he says, breathe in. So you breathe in. Okay? And he moves it again, again, again. What's he listening for? There's something that he's listening for. I don't I guess it's to make sure I'm alive. <laughs> because he he can't hear I he asks me questions. So what about this and what about that? And I tell him, yeah, yeah, this, this, that. And then he listens. God is like that. He doesn't much care what comes out, what he's hearing here. He's listening to what's inside. How do we think of that? Or do we think of that at all? Very often. And these worshipers of the preacher was observing, they were doing their duty. They were doing what they were told to do, what they were asked to do. In fact, he says they were offering the sacrifice of fools. They were doing what they were commanded to do, but their minds were elsewhere. It reminds me of when Jesus was in the temple in Matthew chapter 3. And he's having this, this lively exchange with the, with the Jewish religious leaders. And basically he tells them eventually, all the blood that's been shed from Abel to Zechariah is on you. This generation, this place is going to be destroyed. And I would imagine the disciples, as they heard that, they kind of backed up and they said, whoa, this is some pretty deep stuff. Matthew 2, and there's, it says they were leaving the temple. And what were the disciples? Wow, Jesus, look at these buildings. Isn't this fantastic? They were thinking completely elsewhere. He had just spoken destruction of the city. 
and the nation of Israel and their holy temple. And they're, wow, this is pretty neat stuff. Man, I like the ceiling. Isn't that cool? Those, wow, who did that? Oh, never mind. You see how our minds can go elsewhere so easily. Isaiah 29, 13 says, This people draw near with me, draw near with their mouths, and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Jesus quoted that verse. Ezekiel chapter 33, So my people come pretending to be sincere and sit before you. They listen to your words, but they have no intention of doing what you say. Because their hearts were elsewhere. So this morning I ask myself, where is my heart? We read the verse. You remember the verse that we read for our congregational reading? Psalm 84, 1 and 2. It talks about that very thing. That we love to come into His presence. Do I? Or are we just playing games with God? He's satisfied with my Sunday morning. I need to close. But as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 7, he writes, Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. They're a breath. Doesn't mean that mean that dreaming is a bad thing. It doesn't mean that words are a bad thing. But he said they're a breath. And he says, therefore, stand in awe of God. As we come into these doors, into this place, this is just a building. I wouldn't be there here this morning if you weren't here. And you well, you would be here if I wasn't here. But anyway, never mind. We come here because this is a place where we gather. This building is just a building. We are His church. His Spirit dwells in us that are His children. But do we stand in awe of God? Do we come here Sunday after Sunday to hear from Him? And then what do we do with what we hear? Well, we only remember 20% after one hour and nothing after two weeks. So what do we have to do? What do I have to do to remember what God is speaking. Back to Cain. We started with him, we'll end with him. Why did God reject Cain's offering? His worship. Because Cain wanted to do it his way, on his terms, the way he liked it. And I ask myself and I ask you, am I, are we, any different? I pray that we are. Let's pray. Why don't you stand as we do? Father, this morning, I say these words and I I hope they are true. I pray they are true. I want them to be true in myself and in all of us. That this morning we are standing in awe of You. The holy 
righteous God who has called us, who has invited us to come into your presence boldly, confidently, because of what Jesus has done for us. He has paid the penalty, the sacrifice for our sin. And therefore, we are now your children. We are not slaves. We are not just listening for commands to fulfill. We can come into your presence and you embrace us and you love us. But Father, we have so much to do. Our lives are so busy, filled with so many things. And we can so easily be drawn away by those things and enticed by those things, good things, right things. But Father, where is my heart? Where are our hearts? What drives us? What gives us joy and pleasure? If it's not loving you and being loved by you, We're just offering the sacrifice of fools. Father, I pray that you'll use your word to teach us and give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to listen and to do what you've called us to do and to be what you want us to be. And Lord, as we are now going to take communion as we celebrate together, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.